0: Simply to witness is probably not only our most important responsibility as writers and artists in other disciplines, but also the most meaningful and gratifying. We witness. We witness.
1: State writer laureate Ernestine Hayes has spent a good part of her life bearing witness. The author of the American Book Award winning Blonde Indian and The Tau of Raven, Hayes is known for bringing out the connections between all things. She is also a member of the faculty at the University of Alaska Southeast. She says to better understand our present, we need to look to our past and the history of oppression and genocide of Indigenous peoples. I'm Katie Bosler, and this is Active Voice, 49 Writers' audio series with Alaskan writers on how current events and issues are shaping their work and perspective we're witnessing what, to many Americans, seems like the collapse of everything we believe our country stands for. Truth, justice, equality, freedom. I asked Ernestine Hayes, should we be surprised?
0: Well, I think a lot of people want to be surprised, but those are the same people who felt that the country stood for truth, justice, and freedom in the first place. But those um, people who realize that this country was founded on genocide and made wealthy by slavery are not surprised because it seems a logical step on the continuum. In addition to proclaiming freedom and justice for all while at the same time denying indigenous rights, denying that the the place was already someone's home and had been occupied for thousands of years. In addition to turning an eye away from slavery, I believe that the history also very clearly is based on hypocrisy. To be able to say one thing while in practice another reality completely destroys that concept of freedom and justice for all. So along the continuum we are seeing more and more greed, more and more profit at the, at the cost of lives and anything else. But we're seeing more and more hypocrisy because that is the natural progression. And things are not going to remain static. They're either going to get worse or they're going to get better. And they're certainly going to get more extreme. So we see hypocrisy, which, you know, it seems to, from a certain perspective and analysis indicates that this country was based on hypocrisy. So
1: I'm not surprised at where it's come. And now it's just in our faces. It's just this huge, really uncomfortable, ugly mirror.
0: Yes, yes. And it's no longer as easily denied or ignored for a couple centuries, it was possible for people to believe that the freedom and justice for all song was one that we could believe and, and adhere to. But now, as you say, it's in our face, and it's no longer so easy to deny or ignore. And maybe that's a, a good thing in a bad way, I think it is serving a good purpose for many people who, you know, have now begun to indulge in some self-examination and perhaps confront some of these beliefs in a system that really is unfair and inequitable. And now it's very, very difficult to turn a blind eye to
1: that. But we also have the situation where the citizenry is digging its heels in between, you could say, those who accept this history and those who deny it, those who accept climate change and those who deny it. And if we're going to survive as a species, or so other species can survive, how are we going to make some progress here?
0: Well, that's um, what everyone's wondering, I guess. But it seems to me that you know, we are at a point where some very serious decisions have to be made. I don't think I'm as hopeful as some might be. I think that we are on the path to a logical extreme of where we've been and where we're going. There's still a sizable group of people who believe in profit at any cost. Those are the people, especially now, who have more power and authority and are installed in decision-making roles. And for the sake of profit at the cost of our future. It's difficult to even wonder how that's going to be changed. How do we change a direction? In order to change a direction, we have to change the direction of our gaze. And it does seem that our gaze remains one that values profit, wants to find a way to the future, but one that is still based on profit mongering.
1: And for me, what that kind of brings me back to is my first awareness of this continuum it was when I was 18 years old, and uh, it was my first election. To me, just common sense said, I would not vote for Ronald Reagan, but that obviously was not the common sense of the majority of voters. And he pushed deregulation of industry, disdain for environmental responsibility regarding including coal mines. And then when I was a college student at San Francisco State in the early 80s, I got involved as an activist on the Big Mountain controversy in the Four Corners, which was over coal mining on sacred land. And involved the Hopi and Navajo people, and it's very complicated. And I learned about the Hopi prophecy, which apparently foresaw what we're living through now. And the gist of it was, if you don't, we don't clean up our act as a planet and as humanity, these deadly natural disasters are going to run rampant. You, you listen to the news, look for the, the newspaper any day, and that's what's happening right now. I know that not all Native peoples have the same prophecies, but as an indigenous person, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, as you say, not all indigenous cultures share the same sort of prophecies, but it does seem to me common sense that as a species, we dump poison into the river. We're not going to be able to drink the water that that you think <laughs> and all the other ills and sins that are committed on earth
1: for the sake of cutting costs and the bottom line. So as a writer and a storyteller, what to you and the writer laureate, and thank you for your service as the writer laureate for the last year and a half, what's the role of storytelling in these times? Because again, when you look at that division, it's like my story versus your story.
0: I have a handout on a syllabus that I use, and it lists all the responsibilities and opportunities for writers, but it seems to me that the most important one is simply to witness, because there will come a day in the future after we're gone and people are reading our words, and they will use our words and our narratives to reveal our experience during this moment. And I think simply to witness is probably not only our most important responsibility as writers and artists in other disciplines, but also the most meaningful and
1: gratifying. We witness. We witness. So to witness and to document. Yes. To to write, to tell the story, to broadcast the story, And to to film it share it with Mm -hmm. futures, you
0: know, 50, 100 years from now, people will be looking at where we are and what we're producing in the same way we're looking at writings and um, other testimonies from 50 and 100 years ago to see what people thought, to see what the real experiences were. And we're joining our voices to the other witnesses.
1: Well, that's inspiring as a writer. Do you have any anything to say to Alaska writers in particular about this?
0: I travel around to different places in Alaska, and I see a number of sides to all our questions and social issues and so on. Yeah, what what have you seen? I mean, you've been all over the state last year I, and a half. And before that, because Mm. during the um, Alaska Reads, I I went from Ketchikan to what was then Barrow Mm -hmm. and all over and talked to a lot of people and witnessed a lot of different issues and perspectives and conversations. One thing certainly that was common is talking about the climate change. Everyone notices that. Everyone talks about how different the weather is now, which is really noticeable in Alaska. Alaska's on the front line. Yes, and I think another issue that is that was noticeable for me in Alaska is at least the people who come to my readings and workshops and talk to me, are more open-minded, more prepared and willing to change the direction of their gaze and change the direction of our paths and um, engage in difficult conversations, examining our real history and admitting where we are and where we've come from before we can go forward, which brings us to Tommy Orange, who says the same thing. And I've seen in Alaska, to my mind, the people who want to write and want to read are far more willing than I noticed, say, five or 10 years ago.
1: Yes, and Tommy Orange, uh, for those listeners who, who aren't familiar, he is a young native writer from Oakland who just came out with a, well, the, in 2018, with a um, book that's getting a, a lot of buzz about um, the urban Indian and what it was like to grow up in Oakland, California. And he concludes that in order to go forward, you've got to go back first.
0: Right, and I think people in Alaska in my experience, are more willing to do that, whether it's because Alaska history, relatively speaking, is more recent than the rest of this country. And I think that's part of it. But I also think that the spirit of people who come to Alaska, who live Mm -hmm. in Alaska, Mm -hmm. who call Alaska home, are probably more likely to think for themselves. When they think for themselves, then common sense rises and they recognize what needs to be admitted and confronted.
1: To an extent, because then you also, I think, have people on the right, if you will, who think about it and are willing to, in theory, or intellectually uh, accept that. But then their the pocketbook takes over and it's, but we're going to lose our economy we're 90% dependent on oil. What are we going to do about that? Right. I think a lot of those people
0: don't come to my workshop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but
0: you're you're right because to an extremely large percentage Alaska is still a colony and people come here to exploit the resources and either work or stay here for as long as it takes to make a profit or as long as it takes to put the work in and get to retirement age and whatever and leave. So that's pretty much the definition of a colony. And a lot of people certainly still see Alaska as, as, as that sort of place mm-hmm. where I made the distinction and I see the characteristics of an Alaskan person, of people who are, who are willing to have an open mind as people who call Alaska home, yeah. even after they retire and make yeah. their money, if that's yeah. what they're going to stay here.
1: Yeah, and that also kind of brings up in a whole uh, new way of looking at the term colonist or colonizer. Right, right. I was kind of flashing on this might be here nor there, but when I was an exchange student in England many moons ago, the first person I met was a, a student of laws. They call it laws over there. You're a colonist. That's how he <laughs> greeted me. <And> I, oh. <laughs> Well, I never thought of it that way. (laughs) uh, (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) I think some people also are uncomfortable
0: with the phrase um, settler descendants. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. And I think on the one hand, it's natural Mm -hmm. to question the label that's placed on you. But on the other hand, it's also quite a danger to jump over here and fiddle with what are we going to call each other because that's so much easier to debate than what are we going to do about our history and
1: our future. So that's another common sense uh, thing. Right. we we're, were supposed to have learned when we were five that name calling doesn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> that's the thing. Is it always gets back to these sort of just very basic tenets of human relationships and responsibility and <laughs> and common sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, as speaking of witness, though, um, it, uh, the importance of bearing witness to what's happening now, but also in the spirit of, of you can't go forward until you go back. And I, do you see yourself as a person who bears witness to the past and the past of, of Native peoples?
0: For my own work, I probably have to say I'm more or less limited to telling my own story. But my Own story and my own life has been and continues to be impacted by the things that happen in society, in the dominant system, and so it's impossible to tell our personal stories without witnessing the backdrop of what's going on in our world. The degree to which I witness history
1: is limited because it's through the lens of my personal experiences. But then to get back to what we all are witnesses and we all have stories, and does it all come down to storytelling at some point? I think it does. When I first
0: wrote Blonde Indian, when Blonde Indian first came out, I had a number the reactions fell into two camps of people who read my work, and it was non-native people, white people, descendants of settlers, colonizers, if you will, whose reaction was, I had no idea. And on the other hand, the reaction of native people was, you told my story. This is my story. There's no difference between what you lived through and what I lived through. And I saw the same thing at the Ping Chong play that we did recently, right? Yes. It was the same reaction that non-Native people were surprised and shocked. And they had an impulse of sympathy and said things like oh i went to school with this one and i i had no idea i had no idea and with native people who attended Mm -hmm. it was like those stories are common those are common stories nothing in our stories surprised native people because we either Mm -hmm. lived it or we witnessed it Mm -hmm. in our own families but right. but
1: it's exciting that it's happening
0: right and it's giving us common ground because one of one of the things that I try to relay as much as possible is that here we are now Here we are now. We're a product of our history. We can admit and acknowledge what has brought us here, but we have to go forward together. We have a common future. We have to hold hands and walk into the future and
1: work together. My guest is Alaska Writer Laureate Ernestine Hayes. This is Katie Bosler with 49 Writers. In the next segment of our active voice interview, Hayes touches on new voices emerging from the Creative Writing MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico.
0: Right now, we're reading about Native experience and Native culture and what it means to be Indigenous in a society that pretty much erases Indigenous experience, Indigenous value, Indigenous worth. At some point, the number of Native riders is is going to continue to grow, and I can really be grateful
1: for the role that IAIA plays in that effort. I get the sense that you're anticipating a day when right now you have telling these stories, sharing these some of these horrific stories so that those of us who it's a surprise can understand more where natives are coming from. Are you anticipating a day where we can can move on to a greater story?
0: I'm I- not sure if we're going to ever get to a place where... Our stories do not incorporate who we are and what our experiences have been as a result of the society we live in and the stories of our generations. And we can't separate it from that, but I'm hopeful that just as Native writers and Native artists usually, for the most part, cannot separate their art from their identity, and they hold that up and it's very noticeable now. I'm hopeful that that particular characteristic will be shared by others, right? By non-native people whose identity has been. I mean, what is it like to be? what is it like to be a settler descendant, a white person in America? What is that like? We don't usually see that sort of identity. I'm reading that book, Educated, Mm -hmm. and she, um, I can't recall her name right now, Mm -hmm. but she was raised by a family who were isolated Mm -hmm. and believed that the coming Armageddon was upon them, Mm -hmm. kept them out of school, Mm -hmm. stockpiled food, Mm -hmm. and lived in a very isolated place. So that identity is extremely interesting and very compelling. So Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that that sort of thing will become more and more common Mm -hmm. because, you know, we don't share our identities, but we share the value of who we are. It's a human experience. Mm -hmm. It's a common human value to identify ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful that, you know, that's where we're going for everyone.
1: Yeah, I um, last year took a family heritage trip with my family to, to Latvia. Wow. It, and I hired a genealogical researcher, yeah. who, who we learned that we came from, like a, a lot of people, I think, who were descendants who arrived at Ellis Island, which was my grandparents uh-huh. in the early 1900s, uh, from people who couldn't take a last name until the 1850s because they were basically serfs who worked for German and Russian landlords and didn't have much of an identity of their own. I think it's safe to say that it's probably the same kind of thing with my the other side of my family, which is Irish, uh, who came to Prince Edward Island, um, you know, seeking, I guess, just more autonomy. Right. And so that's the complicated thing, you know. How interesting when, yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah.
0: And um, I think I think what goes might go along with that, in, in a way, is a common refrain that we hear from white Americans, which is I have no culture. I'm so you know, I'm I'm so jealous of you because you have culture and I don't. But that's just not true. Right. And right. once we all recognize yes. our culture and our generations yes. and where we are in this human experience, yeah. the richer we'll we will all be. Exactly. I mean I yeah. think that's I mean, Nina Cortes told me some of her family story which I yeah. found just Fascinating. Yeah. She, she's a Fascinating. former former
1: English professor at at University of Kansas Southeast, who's also yeah. of Black-bean descent. Yeah. And I think of when I went to Ireland uh, more than thirty years ago, and the first time I heard the traditional music, I just felt it right to my heart. You know. Yeah. And that that right. was an awakening for me, and another right. another thing we have in common as human beings.
0: It has to be applicable and true for all people that we receive and carry intergenerational experiences, right? It's very widespread to hear about intergenerational trauma and intergenerational resistance and resilience as it applies to indigenous people.
1: But that has to be true for all
0: humans.
1: And it's, I think, the real human tragedy is that you had people who were escaping tyrants, the pilgrims, for example, who arguably Became tyrants themselves. Yeah, Israel and Palestine. Right, right. I mean, in in seeking and acquiring a homeland, you put a whole another culture and population under this model, folks. Just it's it causes so much pain and suffering. We need to get past that somehow
0: and what's happening at the borders with children and families. Uh, and that's being repeated while while whole generations are telling the stories of how, that, how it impacted them when their families were ripped apart, and yep, here it yep. is being repeated. And it's going to go on to the next generations and the next generations, and those things are going to be intergenerationally replicated
1: as a professor at the university, how does this kind of awareness influence your teaching? You're into a new semester now. What do you say to your students, and, and, and what have you learned from them? My, my main classes at the
0: University of Alaska Southeast here in Juneau are accelerated composition classes for students who come to us underserved and test into pre-college composition In my opinion, the students who come to us underserved, who jump through all those hoops, who have endured 12 years of uh, schooling that, for the most part, does not offer equality in teaching, and they've overcome and endured so many challenges, and they get to university and take a test. They're Mm -hmm. just trying to catch a break. If we help one student change one life, we are changing the generations. We are changing the future of Alaska. And I know this for a solid fact because in 1995, I started at the University of Alaska Southeast as a incoming 50-year-old freshman who never even finished 10th grade. I got in on the strength of an old GED that they found in a drawer in San Francisco. I tell my story to my students and I list some of the challenges that I had to overcome. And when I was a student at the university, I was helping raise my grandchildren and I was trying to work my way through college and I hadn't finished high school and I was broke and I was trying to get by. And I tell my students my story so that they know that determination and persistence is going to get them through. And I hope that by sharing my story, Completing the circle of witnessing,
1: sharing my story, will become part of their story. Ernestine Hayes, thank you for sharing your story, your stories, so many of them. Thank you. Goodness, cheese. Thanks for listening to Active Voice, 49 Writers Audio Series companion to our Active Voice Writers Respond blog, a forum for respectful discussion and debate on current events and issues. The ideas expressed on Active Voice are not necessarily shared by 49 Writers. Original music by Liz Snyder and Alex Cutlars. Hear, read, and learn more at 49writers.org.